Okay, if you're not already there, turn with me to the book of John. And we're going to be in in chapter 5 still this week. And what we're going to see, Jesus is going to continue to double down here. He's not He's not backing off. You know, he's talking to a crowd, and I think their facial expressions are getting worse and worse by the moment with everything that he says. Because, as I said last week, they're they're running out of microphones to to give him because he's just dropping so many mics with everything that he's saying in this section. Okay, again, he's doubling down really in one primary area, and if you can kind of see this theme, I think this will make sense because he kind of bounces back and forth between a couple things. But here's the theme: he is equal. And he is unique in his relationship with the father. If we can see that through this section, we're seeing, I believe, the right thing, the right theme. We're in the aftermath of his healing of the infirm man at the pool of Bethesda. We covered that a few weeks ago. This is, again, John's third hand selected sign. The problem with this sign or this miracle in particular is that Jesus did it on the Sabbath. This is what's causing this ongoing dialogue. This is what caused them in verse 18, ultimately, to want to kill him. Okay, this is kind of the deal. And again, Jesus sees that they're angry. He could have backed off. He could have softened the blows. But you know what? He's stepping into the blows. He's giving them a little bit more. He's doubling down as we were talking about next week. One of the beautiful things about John chapter 5 is if you love Jesus Christ, if you are impressed with Jesus Christ, just hold on to your hat. He's about to get more impressive because of the things that he's going to reveal about himself in John 5. Many of the things here are not revealed anywhere else in scripture. They're unique to this section of scripture. We're going to consider this morning. One of the things that we're going to do this morning and and next week is really look at these greater works. Let's kind of read that for context. Go back to verse 20. This is kind of a unique statement he says here. He says in verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. We talked about that last week, that these greater works that the son is going to do is designed for his audience to marvel, to be blown away. And I think you can insert yourself into that category. They're designed to blow you away. They're designed to take your breath away, so to speak, about who Jesus Christ really is. He wasn't just a lowly carpenter from Nazareth. He was that, but he's much more than that. And that's what he's going to teach us here. And those great works, as we're going to see, are going to be raising the dead and judging the world. Those are going to be really what he expands on here is the greater works, raising the dead and judging the world, which, by the way, to the average Jew, and if we're honest, to the average Christian, we typically view those two things as works of God the Father. In fact, when we think about who's going to judge the world, what do we typically say? God, God the Father, and we typically mean God the Father. What we're going to find this morning is that God the Father has committed that role and that task to God the Son. That's mind-blowing because it tells us a little bit more about who Jesus Christ is. There's a reason, again, that they're responding the way that they're doing. Verse 18, they understand what Jesus is saying. They understand that he didn't stutter here, that he's not just kind of hinting at this, that he is actually coming out in bold proclamation that he's fully equal with God. This is why they want to kill him because they said there's no way this man is equal to God. As we go into this morning, verse 22 we read this and we want to learn who is judging who here. Who is, who is the judge? Who is the primary actor in judging the world? And again, normally our mind just goes to God the Father. That's just kind of where it normally goes, which is fine. And it's not to say that the triune God is not involved in final judgment. I believe the triune God is. It's not like God the Father and God the Spirit is like, hey, we're just going to take that day off. You know, Jesus, go ahead and judge. I think they're, they're in unity in the way that they judge. But, but Jesus is going to tell us he's the primary actor here. Let's read verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And again, this for, this great Bible study word, it bridges us back to verse 20. It provides this further explanation of why the son is able to see what the father does and then replicate what the father does. So he sees what he does and he's able to replicate what he does. In fact, go back uh, again. We've looked at verse 20 a couple of times, but notice the father loves the son and shows him 
all the things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these. This is just one example of the greater work that the son is going to judge. This word judge means to separate or to distinguish is exactly how you would think it would mean. It means to discriminate between good and evil. It means forming an opinion after you've considered the particulars of the case. That means when God, the father turns that over to the, to the son, that Jesus is going to judge righteously, perfectly, and in complete holiness. Now, why is that significant to the story this morning? Because Jesus's audience are saying, you're wrong, dude. You shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath. You have made an improper judgment on what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And Jesus basically just mic dropped and said, guys, I'm the one that makes those decisions. (laughs) I'm the man. I'm the one who's going to evaluate. And I've been given that authority by my father. You see, and this is where Jesus is going. Now, it's used in the present tense, this, this word judge. It means that right now, God is not passing judgment on anyone. The word no one in the Greek is a single word, udes. It means not even one or not at all. Now, why could he say that? It's because he's given this responsibility to the son. And if you give a responsibility to someone you trust, what do you typically do? You allow them to do it. You don't micromanage. You know, the only time you micromanage is when you give something to someone and you don't trust that they're going to do it. Then you kind of watch over their shoulder a little bit, make sure they're doing it all right. God, the father's not doing that. He has given it to the son. He completely and implicitly trusts what the son is going to do. Now, as I mentioned before, this is a fascinating statement for a couple of reasons. It, in terms of just the way that we normally think, a fascinating statement for Jesus's audience for a number of reasons. Number one, as I mentioned, Almost always when we think of judgment, we think God the Father is going to be the primary agent of judgment. That's just naturally how we think. We, we think about that great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation 20. We think God the Father. We think that's going to be his throne. So this would have been new to the Jews. They, uh, again, expected to stand before God the Father on judgment day. But this verse teaches differently. That's not how it's going to work. Jesus is going to be intimately involved, and this is one of those greater works that I think he references. Second thing that's fascinating is when we get to Acts 17, 31, Paul adds some additional detail on this this day of judgment, and that Jesus Christ is going to be the standard of the the righteousness. He's going to be the standard of what is being judged. Acts 17, 31 says this, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, then notice that next phrase, by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. You know what this tells us? Is that religion doesn't have, uh, doesn't hold a candle to this topic. Because religion always wants to compare you to the righteousness of your neighbor. Religion wants to compare you to the righteousness of your coworker. Religion wants to compare you to the righteousness of your sweet old granny. Religion wants to compare you to the righteousness of Mother Teresa. And I'm going to tell you, none of those people hold a candle to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's good news in some ways. That is bad news in others. Because if you came in thinking this morning that you're a little bit better than your neighbor, and that's probably going to get you into heaven, you're on the wrong grading scale. You're, you're talking about the wrong professor. God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not impressed because, uh, whatever, you don't mow your lawn on Sunday and your neighbor does. He doesn't, that's not the level of righteousness that he's looking for. He's looking at the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is why when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. That was mind-blowing to the average Jew. What? We got to be more righteous than the Pharisees? I mean, those guys don't even get out of bed on the Sabbath. You know I mean? They don't do, I mean, they're, they're tithing on all this kind of stuff. I mean, they're, they're incredible, these guys, right? And Jesus is saying, no, it's going to be higher than that. It's going to be according to a perfect standard of righteousness. And this is why the gospel is so amazing. This is why we preach this message because it's so incredibly amazing. Religion wants to tell you what you must do to get more righteous and what you must stop doing to get more righteous. God's got a totally better plan than all of that. 
He sent a savior to die for your sins. He rose him from the dead. He wants to prove to you that he is going to judge in perfect righteousness. He's not sliding anyone under the table, but guess what? Here's the beauty of the gospel. When you trust in God's solution, he credits Jesus Christ's righteousness to your account. The very righteous one becomes your righteous ticket into heaven. God does it. Isn't God wonderful? (laughs) Isn't he amazing for doing that? This is what's incredible about what Jesus is saying. Not only am I going to be the judge, I'm going to be the standard, and I'm going to offer you a way that you can be declared righteous just like me. No funny business, public execution, public plan put out for anybody to respond to. This is what's so incredible about the gospel. The third thing that's kind of fascinating about this statement that the the son will be judging is what were the Jewish religious leaders doing at this very moment? They were judging Jesus Christ. And guess who were they? They were judging Jesus Christ on behalf of, in their thinking, God the Father. That's what every religious person does, by the way. That's why they're so judgmental. They're, They're taking up God's job for him and trying to judge everybody else. And that's typically how that works. But they are thinking that he has got the wrong application in this situation. They're basically telling Jesus, you're evaluating this whole thing wrong. And Jesus is saying, I'm not evaluating this thing wrong. I'm the judge of the universe. I evaluate things correctly. And so they were clearly wrong in their understanding. This word committed that he uses here, it means to give of one's accord. Normally, actually, in the New Testament, the word is translated give. And and here's what's so incredible about this statement. When you start to kind of peel back the layers of the onions of what he's actually saying and what's being implied is that the father and son are so like-minded and in complete unity that the father has given every evaluation and judgment into the son's hand and he completely trusts him to do things the right way. That's mind-blowing. If you could... Be a fly on the wall in this, this conversation. I mean, this is, this looks like a human man standing in front of them. <laughs> what is this guy talking about? But this is, this is the beauty of the incarnation. This is the uniqueness of the God man, Jesus Christ. And he is bringing this out clearly. By the way, the verb is in the perfect tense. We're going to bring, remember perfect a couple times because we're bringing it out in this passage. It comes up a couple times. Very unique verb tense in the Greek. It, it indicates a completed action in the past with ongoing results in the present. And so in this case, the father had given responsibility of official judgment over to Jesus Christ at a point in time in the past with results continuing in the present. What does that mean right now? Jewish religious leaders, listen up. You should be listening to the son. He's got the accurate evaluation of what is, if you can heal on the Sabbath or not. This is the point here. Now, notice uh, again, as we kind of just go back to the text, it's not some judgment. You know, it's not, Jesus isn't on the JV team of justice, right? He gets it all. He's got all the cases. He's got every evaluation. It's been given over into his hand. It's all of it. And so again, they shouldn't be trusting their own evaluation. This is kind of the point, I think, where Jesus is going. And there's also something that we're going to see here because these greater works, if you recall back in verse 20, they were designed to get their audience to marvel. That was one response they would have. When they were to find out the truth of who Jesus was and what he was actually tasked with, what, what greater works the Father was showing him that he too would do, they were designed to be like, man, you're amazing. You're incredible. You're something else. You're out of this world. You take my breath away kind of idea. But notice as we get into verse 23, there's another response that was designed to come out of this audience when they found out specifically that he was the judge of all the world. And we'll see that in verse 23. It's that he was to be honored. That sounds like a, a, maybe a, minute, a minor thing, but we're going to see that Jesus, again, just digs down a little bit on this whole concept of, of honor and what he's saying. So verse 23 says this, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now, anytime you see the word that in Bible study, 
underline it. I mean, I know it looks like this insignificant word to, to get from one important thing to the next kind of deal. But that's very important because that here is what's called a Hina clause in the Greek. It gives us the purpose or the reason that God has committed all judgment to the Son. Or maybe even specifically in this context, the purpose or reason that Jesus is sharing that he's been given uh, all judgment by the Father. And one of the things that's so interesting is this word honor. It means to esteem, to reverence, or to bestow special marks of honor or favor upon someone. Now, we see this in our own courtrooms of the day, right? You walk into a courtroom, you address the judge as sir, ma'am, or your honor. In fact, if you're like, hey, dude, I don't know why I didn't, I mean, boom, you're shut down. If you've ever been in a courtroom, you don't do that. And what do you do when the judge walks in? You play on your phone? No, you, in fact, your phone is off by the time you get in the courtroom, right? You stand up. Why do you stand up? It's just to show the judge honor. When the judge leaves the courtroom, what do you do? You stand up. You show the judge honor. So we see that even borne out in our day. And so subordination usually uh, dictates less honor, right? We've already seen that Jesus back up in verse 19, he says, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. And so Jesus verbally has put himself in subordination to the father here. But now what he's saying is because the father has given me the responsibility of judging all things, I'm at the same level of him in terms of deserving your honor and deserving your declaration of glory. Now, that's pretty amazing because Jesus right here in this verse is elevating himself to the level of the Father. You see what I mean when I say Jesus is doubling down? He's, he's not making it any easier on his audience to hear this. I, I can just see, you know, like, um, you know, people oftentimes when they get mad, they grind their teeth. You've, has anyone had that experience where you see someone's face and you can just visually tell they're not happy with something right then? I mean, I, I just picture this audience. Like, These guys are losing teeth. They're grinding so much right now. I mean, they're grinding it down to a nub. You know, I mean, they're, they're so ticked off. And then Jesus just keeps giving it to them and doubling down because I think what he's doing is he's taking a stand, showing them who he is and the value of his personhood and what he's all about. And so he is putting himself on equal footing with God. Now, Notice what's really interesting in verse 23. The Greek kind of brings this out with the word should. You see, you kind of see that in verse 23. It says that the reason he did this is that all should honor, right? And so it, it reflects what's called the subjunctive mood in the Greek. It's a mood that's probable or possible, but it's not guaranteed to happen. In fact, we know from the story, we, we know the story, know how this ends, Many of these very religious leaders are going to hear this information and reject this information and not honor the son. Not only not honor him, you know, there's, there's a way you can not honor someone by just ignoring them, blowing them off like, oh, he's a, he's a lunatic, he's a psycho. That's a way of not honoring somebody. They're going to go a step further. They're going to not honor him and desire to take him out, right? They're going to desire to kill him. And we've already seen that expressed here um, in the text. Now, Notice this, and this is what's so important. The father did this. The father committed judgment to the son for a very specific reason. That's because he wants Jesus to receive the same honor that he receives. That's what Jesus is claiming here. He's claiming to speak for the father. He's claiming to give us the motives of the father. This is why he did this. This is why I'm sharing it with you so that I might receive the same honor that God the father receives. And to share honor with the son, it, it clearly indicates the father's and son's equality. They got it right in verse 18. Jesus was making himself equal with God. They knew that. And they're right. He keeps doubling down on that. In fact, think about this. Isaiah 42, 8, we're very familiar with this passage from the Old Testament. Uh, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carve my praise to carved images. What's this saying? This saying that God will not share his glory or honor with anyone else. So understand the logical connection here, right? If God the Father desires God the Son to be honored or glorified the same way he is, what's he saying? 
we're equal. We're one God, three persons, right? This is what he's saying here. And this is what Jesus is bringing out. And one of the things that he goes on to say that is he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. This statement is the exact opposite from what the religious leaders were thinking. They thought they were honoring the father by standing up against God, the son and his activity on the Sabbath. They were doing the exact opposite. And he's saying, look, if you don't honor the son, you're rejecting me. But if you don't honor the son, you're really not honoring the father who sent me. This is, uh, Jesus is showing them what's really going on in this section. So ironically, by passing judgment on Jesus, determining that he was worthy of death, they were dishonoring him by dishonoring his evaluation of Sabbath laws. By doing this, they were dishonoring God's chosen representative on earth to judge all things. And so ultimately they were rejecting the master's hand-selected servant. And this, this all goes back to why Jesus is telling them, I've been given all judgment. This is in order that you would honor me. Just like you would honor the father, I should get the same honor and glory. You know, I put Matthew 21 up there as a cross-reference. For sake of time, we won't read it, but let me give you a summary. You guys will remember this parable. Jesus gives a parable of a landowner of a vineyard. He leases his vineyard to tenant farmers who are designed to farm and then provide him with a cut of the profits. Well, uh, around harvest time, he sends a servant in to get a cut of the profits. And these tenant farmers see the servant. They know what he's there for, but they, they get him and they beat him and they send him home empty-handed. And the landowner says, well, that's funny. Let me send another. Maybe, the, maybe my servant gave him a cross look. Let me send another servant. Sends another servant. This servant, they get him and they kill him. So uh, the landowner's like, wow, where's that servant go? He never came back and, and, and he was killed. He sends another, another servant, the text tells us, and he was stoned. So finally the landowner says, okay, they, they don't have respect. They don't, they're not showing honor for my servants, but they'll show honor for my son. I'm gonna send my son to them to collect the profits. And we read this in verse 38 of Matthew 21. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him and they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And, and, and that is kind of the punchline to the story. And what we read as we go further is that the same audience that Jesus is speaking to in John, John 5 is basically the same audience that he's speaking to in Matthew 21. It was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees get to the end of that parable and they said, oh, he's speaking about us. We're, we're the tenant farmers in this situation. The, the servants that were sent, that were beaten, that were killed, that were stoned, those represent the prophets and the son that he sent represents Jesus Christ. And they didn't like the implication, if you can imagine, by the story. But that's exactly what's going on. They rejected God's representative, thus they were rejecting God. They wouldn't show God's representative honor, thus they dishonored the father by implication. This is what Jesus is bringing out. Now, as I mentioned before, the, the intensity, the heat in the room is heating up because they're probably visibly rejecting him more and more, getting ramped up even in their, probably their body language. I think Jesus is sensing this because when we get to verse 24, Jesus is going to use a, uh, a rhetorical device to basically say, almost like if, if, if I were up here and let's say, um, you know, so one of my kids is sleeping over here and I'm like, man, this was the point I really designed for that child. I might go, Hey, Hey, wake up. Oh, hey, listen to me real quick. Or I might say their name really loud, like, hey, Cody. Uh, oh, my son, Cody. Uh, you know, and then, then I give my point. So he would, he would hear it or whoever else I might be picking on that day. Jesus is going to do something similar here. He's going he's gonna to go to a more solemn tone. Not that he hasn't been serious before. He's been serious. I mean, I think he's been serious. But he's going to let his audience say, listen up, because I'm, I'm about to tell you something very serious. I'm about to get to a serious serious statement here. And he's going to do this with that phrase um, that you're going to see there at the beginning of verse 24, most assuredly. Okay. Most assuredly, you're going to, if you kind of trace that through the book of John, you're going to see it a lot. This was Jesus's way of saying, Hey, what I'm about to say is super duper trustworthy. What I'm about to say is very serious. And I think Jesus, in looking at his audience face, you know, you wonder why he goes here in verse 24. I think it's to, to keep talking about how, he, how he's going to be doing greater works. But I think specifically, I think he's starting to see this verbal or this visual expression of hate and disagreement. And he says, you know, before I lose them, I got to get to the punchline. 
I got to get to the punchline. And this is where I think he goes here in verse 24. We're going to see two conditions here, three results. Um, those of you that have been attending here, don't, don't get concerned with the two conditions. We know that salvation is by faith alone. There's one condition, but there's a condition that is precursor to that. And you got to hear the message. Okay. That's what we're going to see here. So I didn't want anyone having a heart attack out there where there's not two things you got to do to be saved. There's one thing you got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again. But you've got to hear that message in order to respond to it. It's kind of the point. So we're going to see these two conditions and three results. And that first phrase, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, Jesus uses a, a Greek phrase, amen, amen. Ever heard of amen before? It's one of those words that, that came over, transliterated from Hebrew into Greek and then from Greek into English. It just doesn't, it doesn't get translated. It's the same thing in Hebrew, Greek, English, but it's amen, amen. And he would use this. It's like a, 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 using the same word in doubly in the same spot or repeating it it is a way of, of giving an emphasis. And again, what he's saying here is what I'm about to say is super duper trustworthy. What, what he's about to say, you can take to the bank is kind of the idea. We might say it in our day. The net Bible translated, I tell you the solemn truth. And so I think he's taking a very serious tone here. And he's going to put these guys on the spot with what he's going to say, because they need to respond to this. Okay. They might not agree about Sabbath laws. Okay. Whatever. They might not agree about all these other things. Okay. Whatever. But they need to respond to this. They need this because life and death, eternity hangs in the balance based on how they respond to this verse. And so there's two conditions here which when met results in three things. And we're going to look at those one at a time. So these two conditions are simply this. First one, he who hears my word. Now, this is not hearing like some of us hear. It doesn't mean it it hits your hearing apparatus in your head. <laughs> like sounds bumped your hearing out. It's not that at all. This is engaged listening. This is eager listening, or you're really paying attention. You're engaged. You're really trying to process what's being said. That's what's being described here. He who hears my word. Now, why is this important as it relates to our context? Why is it important to listen to Jesus's words? Because I think he would make the argument that his word is the exact same as the father's word. That's the whole point of this context is that they are in equality and unity and everything that he says and everything that he does is in unity and equality with the Father. By the way, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says this, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, uh, made the worlds. Hearing here is engaged listening. Understanding that God has sent his Son from heaven to communicate to us maybe we should put our phone down. Maybe we should flip the TV off. Maybe we should stop watching so many YouTube videos. I mean, it's hard too, right? They keep coming up. You're like, well, that sounds interesting too. Oh, that sounds interesting too. Next thing you're there for two hours. No, these guys needed to put away their understanding of Old Testament religious Sabbath laws and everything else they expected coming out of the Old Testament and listen to the son. God had a very specific message designed for them as given through the revelation of the son. And so engaged listening, hearing Jesus's words, try, designed to understand and respond to it is a condition that must be met for the next point. And the next point is, and believes in him who sent me. Now, believe is that word in John used a hundred times. Only thing you got to do to be saved, believe. Hundred times, about a hundred times, John uses this word. It means to have faith in, it means to trust in, it meant to be firmly persuaded as to something and thus relying upon it as a result. Again, we've talked about the difference between believing that Jesus died for the sins of the world and believing that Jesus died for my sins. That makes it personal. That, that engages the mind where we see that our sins, specific sins, put Jesus on that cross and that when he died that day, and this is kind of a sentimental statement, but I believe that the love of God is this deep because we can't measure it. That if your sins were the only one he had to die for, I think he'd do it. That's how much he loves you. And this is that personal element 
of the gospel and this personal element of personal reliance upon. I'm not trusting in the fact that my dad was a Christian to get me into heaven. I'm not trusting in the fact that my mom quotes Bible verses. I'm not trusting in the fact that I grew up in a church that had a wana and I went to Sunday school every Sunday. I'm not trusting in any of that. I'm not trusting in my pastor. Good, good night. I'm trusting in the one who died for me and rose again. When I get to the pearly gates of heaven and God says, why should I let you in? It's not because I made a promise to you. I told you I'd quit that sin and I did. I threw that can of snuff out of my pocket and I threw it right into the, I quit cussing when I was 14 years old. I quit doing this. It is gonna be because of that man seated at your right hand who's got the holes in his hand and the holes in his feet who died for me. It's only because of him. That's going to be our declaration. This is what we're talking about, relying on Jesus. It's not, well, Jesus did most of it, but I studied my Bible too. Jesus did most of it, but I won my Awana awards and I memorized verses. It's not about that at all. It's about what the Son of God did for us and completed for us 2,000 years ago. It says that that is the response, believing in him, relying upon him. This is personal trust in what Jesus Christ did. And by the way, hearing the word of God as the very object of faith is what God wants us to rely upon. This is what Romans 10, 17 says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so in the case of our context, the question for Jesus' listeners were, will you engage with what he's saying? Will you actually listen to what he's saying? That's question number one. And if you listen to what he was saying, would you believe them to the point that you'll rely on what he's saying? Will you be persuaded enough to personally rely on what Jesus is saying? If you're an astute Bible student, you may have picked this up. But notice that Jesus says here specifically, one must believe in him who sent me, right? Talking about God the Father. What's the normal pattern that we find in the book of John in scripture? You must put your faith in the son of God. Jesus is talking here about putting our faith in the father, the one who sent him. And so the question becomes, why did he change that up? What's the difference here from what he usually says? And I think it all has to do with context, and we'll, we'll come back to that comment in a second. But let me show you a cross-reference verse from John 12, 44, which I think just communicates this concept very well that's reflected in our context. John 12, 44, it says this. Then Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me, notice this, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. You see, there's this, there's this overlap that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're believing in God the Father because you're trusting in the representative he sent. And when you believe in God the Father, you're believing in his representative that he sent. You see, it's, it's this overlap, this object of faith that we see here. And so we, again, we're coming back to the context of John 5. You see the unity and the equality that Jesus is setting up? If you believe in God the Father, you'll believe in me. That's the connection that he's making because I am God's representative. I am God's solution to the sin problem. In essence, the the triune Godhead is the object of faith. Now, clearly Jesus Christ performed the act and performed the work that we trust in, he himself. But the triune God is an object of faith. In fact, if someone were to believe in him, we're gonna see three immediate results. And And the text brings this out. These are immediate results. This is not believe in Jesus and let's see how your life goes for the next 30 years and then we can tell you if the results are true of you. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says the moment you believe these things are true of you. And so let's look at those three results. Verse 24 again. The first one is you have everlasting life. Has means that to you have something, you hold something that implies continual possession. If you are holding a Bible right now, you have that Bible in your hands. If you're holding a pen, if you're holding a notebook, I'm holding this clicker. I have this in my hands. It means I possess it. We're not talking about possessing a clicker here. We're not talking about possessing a Bible because if you got a really mean neighbor, they could probably slap whatever you're holding in your hand out of your hand right now. Right? So we're not talking about holding a pen. That might not be an eternal thing. Clearly you go to bed at night, you put your pen down, what have you. We're talking about the moment you believe you possess and you hold something that lasts forever. Let's not overlook the simplicity, but the dynamic simplicity of what Jesus is saying here. The, by the way, the word has is a present tense. It means right now, the moment you believe you have immediate possession 
of everlasting life. This means the moment someone believes in the Lord Jesus, then right now, right now, this means, and we won't give an altar call because we don't want you to get confused by that. We want you to trust in a savior and what he did 2000 years ago, not what you're gonna do this morning. But if we were to give an altar call, that would mean, according to this verse, you wouldn't even have to wait till the end of the service to get saved. You could right now, in the quietness of your heart, transfer your trust to Jesus Christ alone to save you. And in that moment, quiet moment, (laughs) nobody even knows. You don't have to raise your hand, pray a prayer, let the pastor know you did something. I, I mean, I would love to know, but you don't have to do that, right? Right then, in that moment, this verse says, you possess life that never ends. That's based on the testimony of the word of God. And that's super encouraging. And by the way, this is why behavior in the future can never impact whether or not someone possesses eternal life. Behavior or lifestyle wasn't a condition to get eternal life. So it's not a condition to keep it either. In fact, if you had to behave as a condition of eternal life, by the way, this statement could never be made of you because we'd have to wait until you died to know whether your behavior indicated or dictated that you have eternal life. The the whole concept that says you can have it right now alone indicates that behavior is not factored into our salvation. And why would it be? Because even our good works are like filthy rags, let alone the other junk and garbage we do called sin that would condemn us. It's not our behavior. And this is again where religion and religious think thinking gets it all wrong. They always constantly want to make it about your behavior. They constantly want to make it about what you're doing and what you're not doing. And the Bible wants to point your eyes back 2000 years ago to a savior that handled it all for you. God, the father's solution to sin right back there 2000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. Religion wants to focus on your hands and feet. The Bible wants you to focus on someone else's hands and feet entirely. The one who died for you, the one who bled for you, who shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins that they might be removed from you. See, religion just gets it all wrong. They just continually focus about some moment out in the future when God wants us focused on a day and an event in history that happened in the past in terms of assurance for salvation. And so again, good behavior doesn't secure possession of eternal life, nor does bad behavior remove possession of eternal life. Eternal life by definition is eternal. It means it has to last forever. I mean, this is just normal language we're looking at here. So if I can lose eternal life based on behavior five years from now, then it wasn't eternal. It was five-year life. This is what we've got to put together in our thinking. And it's based not on our behavior, but on the behavior of somebody else. That's why we get saved by faith. We're trusting in what someone else did. We've stopped trusting in what we're doing. That is a losing proposition. Because great, great week. I feel really good about my salvation. All terrible week. I better do some penitence. You know, I better crawl on my knees, you know, for breakfast every morning. Eat cereal off the floor and really punish myself, you know. I mean, this is how religion is just whacked so many times in this thinking. The second result is that you shall not come into judgment. Now, this is a very small word, but I think it's very important. It's the phrase shall not just translates one Greek negative particle. It's ooh. And ooh is different than may. It, it expresses a full and direct negation that is independent from any attending circumstances. Keep that in mind. It's independent from any attending circumstances. That means nothing can knock this promise out of the way, is the idea. In other words, when it says, you shall not come into judgment, nothing you do or don't do could ever bring you into judgment again. That's what this is saying. It's a direct and full negation. It's absolute. And again, religious thinking, they always want to add attendant circumstances. Well, They say, you won't come into judgment unless you do X, Y, Z sin. And then all bets are off. You know, that's kind of how religion approaches this. Or you won't come into judgment unless you do X, Y, Z sin this many times or this habitually or this continually. What is that? 
What is that number marker? Can you please tell me, Mr. Religious Guy? I don't know, but you don't want to get close to it. And you know the reason they don't know? Because it's not in the Bible. There's not a clear distinction in the Bible. Because the Bible, by the way, is pretty impressed with what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago. If I'm still being condemned for sins that I commit in the future, which are sins that he died for, how does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. And that's why the Bible can speak unequivocally and just use these incredible promises. And religious people always want to walk back the promises of the Bible. Why? It's a beautiful message based on a beautiful Savior, based on his accomplishment 2,000 years ago. That's what's so incredible about all this. In fact, this shall not come, this verb come, is present tense. It means right now this person will not come into judgment. It's an indicative mood, which means it's a mood of fact. It's not, you might not come into judgment if you don't do X, Y, Z, whatever. It's saying you won't. It's a guaranteed promise. In other words, we might say it this way. Jesus said it earlier in John 3 that this person is no longer condemned because they have believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And so this statement has future implications as well, especially when you tie it into the first promise. Because if you have eternal life, what's that mean? You'll never die. (laughs) You'll never come into judgment. And oh, by the way, who's providing the final judgment? The very one who's making these promises. So his evaluation is true. His evaluation is trustworthy in this way. By the way, there's a reason that we will never come into judgment. And you know why? Jesus took it in full for us. There's no judgment that remains for you. This is why Paul can state so emphatically in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus or are you out? And you're like, man, tell me how to get in. We just looked at it. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father places you in Christ, you're in. No condemnation will ever befall you again. This all fits together like a hand in glove. And then finally, we have this third result. It says, but it's passed from death into life. This this phrase has passed. It's a compound word in the Greek, meta and bino. It means to pass or to go from one place or state to another, meaning to transfer from one place to another. Now, I love this phrase. I'm I'm excited about the first two, but I'm really excited about this third phrase because of the way Jesus verbalizes this. It's just so beautiful and incredible. Uh, The way he words, it's really, really cool. Has passed. Remember I told you perfect tense is going to come up again. Perfect tense indicates completed action in the past with ongoing results in the present. You have passed from death to a continual existence of life. It's kind of the idea. And that happened at a point in time. What point in time? When the condition in 524 was met, when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, this became true of you. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I didn't even feel that. You know, I, shouldn't I have felt that? No, there's many things you don't feel the moment you trust in Christ, but you learn happened to you in that exact moment. This is one of those things. So the completed change of state or the completed transfer from one place to another involves a change from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it has this ongoing result or effect to pass from death literally means to pass out of death or out of condemnation. And so it indicates that prior to a person believing they're in death, they're in a state of condemnation. This is exactly what the Bible says. And by implication, they're out of life. You, you can't, you're either in one or in the other, right? This isn't spiritual hokey pokey, right? Where you got one foot in, you take your one foot out. That's not how this works at all. You're either in one or you're in the other. And this is why Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is so incredible. It teaches this exact truth that Jesus is bringing out here. He says, you we made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And if you skip down to the end of that passage, you were by nature children of wrath. You were in, whether you realize it or not, and, and God blessed all these babies being born. But the truth of the matter is they're born in Adam. They're, they're in a good human family, I would venture to say, but they're in the wrong spiritual family the day that they're born into this world. And that was true of all of us. We are by nature children of wrath. And that's why these little babies, they grow up to be big babies, you know, big, big adult. No, I'm just kidding. But they grow up. 
And that's why we need to teach them the word of God. And we need to exhort them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because they too need to transfer from death to life. And they do that by personal faith the same way we did. Not because mom and dad are, you know, volunteering for every, you know, volunteer group at the church. That doesn't, doesn't work. It doesn't transfer them that way. One way to transfer from death to life, that's by putting your faith in Jesus Christ in him alone. We've got passed from death. We've got passed into life, literally placed into a position of life. This, again, indicates prior to hearing believing, the, the person is out of life. They're connected to death. They're in death. They don't possess spiritual life. And see, here's where it's really awesome. This is where Greek kind of supports what we, we typically understand from the English oftentimes. But this change of position from death to life is a forever and ongoing result that you can't go back from. That is what's so beautiful. And you start to put these things together. I have eternal life. I will not come into judgment. And I have been transferred from death to life. All of those things go together to, pre, to promote one thing, that the moment you trust in Christ, you're saved. Because saviors know how to save. And saviors save, especially the savior that we have. He knows how to save. This is what we see drawing uh, forward here. Now, Jesus knows how people are going to respond. And we're going to see this in verse 25. He says, most assuredly, uses that, that phrase again, amen, amen. What I'm about to say is super duper trustworthy. I say to you, the hour is coming. And now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. And so whatever he wants his listeners to be convinced of, he says they can be convinced of right now. They don't have to wait for a day in the future. They don't have to kick the can down the road. They should very intently listen, right? He said, he who hears my words engaged listening, they should be listening right now and they should be responding right now. Don't kick this down the road because he's gonna say that even right now, there are dead people hearing his voice. Now he's not talking about dead like, physically, although I think there's a, we'll talk about that in a second. But I think in this context, he's talking about dead spiritually. They're going to hear what Jesus is saying. They're going to respond by faith and they're going to become alive spiritually. I think this is what he's describing here in verse 25. Although there's, I think, a physical application coming out of this. We'll talk about that in a second. So when the dead hear the voice of the son of God, I think it's simply a further explanation or expansion on verse 24. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. When we see this will here, it's future indicative. And it's interesting, it's an indicative mood because Jesus is guaranteeing there are gonna be some of you that hear and there are gonna be some of you that believe. There's a guaranteed response indicated here that some of these spiritually dead people will listen with an engaged ear and will believe. And those who hear will live. Another expansion off of verse 24 is just kind of building his argument. One of the results was what? Eternal life. One of the other results was you're placed into life. And so he says, those who hear in implication believe will live. This is what he's further describing here. And so what's interesting about this statement though is, as I mentioned, it's true spiritually. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here, but it's also true physically. In fact, the moment a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they're made alive spiritually, but that moment of faith also guarantees a future physical resurrection. By the way, what, which was, what was one of Jesus' greater works in this passage? It was judgment of all and resurrection. So it's kind of tying this all back together. And we're going to see that kind of finish out um, next week. But let me just look at this really quickly. A couple more points. Spiritually, it's true of all people who are born in the world spiritually dead, who need spiritual life, who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it's spiritually true. And we just studied in verse 24, this, is, this type of life is given the moment someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ. But it locks in a future physical promise as well. It's going to be true of people, not only in the lifetime of Jesus, we'll see Lazarus when we get to John 11. Uh, there were a couple of other resurrections that Jesus in, initiated um, during his life. Uh, but we're going to see Lazarus in John 11. But it's also going to be true of every saved and unsaved person in history. This is going to be another mic drop moment when we get there in verse 29 next week. But look at it real quick with me. And come forth, those who have done <clears throat> good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That tells us this, that saved people are going to be resurrected. 
and unsaved people are going to be resurrected. Let's look at that carefully. These two distinct resurrections for believers throughout time. For the church age saint, we're going to see that the physical resurrection of the church age saint in our glorified body happens at the rapture of the church. And you can see that primary passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18. What about the Old Testament saints? What about all the believers before the church age? Well, I believe they're going to be physically resurrected and given glorified bodies so that they can participate in the millennial kingdom and obviously the eternal kingdom following. We see that in Daniel 12, 1 through 2. Same kind of concept Jesus communicates in John 5, 29. is found in Daniel 12, 12, 1 and 2. The problem was is Jesus' audience didn't see Jesus in Daniel 12. They saw God the Father in Daniel 12. Jesus is like, nope, that's me right there in Daniel 12. That's me in Daniel 12, 1 through 2. I'm going to raise the dead, both saved and unsaved. And then we see, uh, which, is, uh, which is the tragedy for unbelievers of all ages, they're, they're awaiting their day of judgment before the Son at the great white throne judgment. All unbelievers of all times are in a temporary holding place that we know as hell, Uh, or torments as a part of Hades. They will one day be resurrected. This will happen after the millennial kingdom, prior to entrance into the eternal kingdom, and they will have to appear before the great white throne. And guess what? God being the fair judge, Jesus Christ being the fair judge, the righteous judge that he is, he is gonna have a record of all the works that they've done in their life. He's gonna slide them out. He's gonna put them on the table and he's gonna say, let's see if you're righteous enough. And the unfortunate thing for every one of those people is no one will be righteous enough. No, not one. And it's a tragic, it's going to be a tragic day. I hope that we don't have to watch it because I think we're going to have loved ones there. I think we're going to have friends there. I think we're going to have family members there. And it's hard enough to think about that right now, but let alone see the day where their final judgment is sealed. Although their final judgment was sealed the day they took their last breath and they rejected God's provision of salvation and righteousness through the person of Christ. And so this is what we're going to see. We're going to continue even next week looking at these greater works that Jesus was given. And so let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I really, Lord, I just, I just look at your word. I see your heart bleeding through. I, I know, and I think I can confidently state that you don't want anybody to go to hell. You don't desire that anybody would be separated from you for eternity we are so grateful for what the Lord Jesus did. We pray that, again, his work, his accomplishment would be really just high on the, uh, on the level of our minds as we live this morning, that we would be more impressed with Jesus Christ than when we came in, in terms of who he is, what you've entrusted him to do, and what he actually accomplished for us. And we're just so thankful, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.